Debbie and I have a very special storage box that says on it, Christmas movies and music. And uh, every, it's our tradition, every Thanksgiving, you know, while I'm putting up the outside decorations and getting our Christmas tree, that's kind of our tradition. We do that on Thanksgiving weekend. We get out that box and uh, it's got all kinds of movies in it. And, you know, we just sort of watch them during the Christmas season. You know, there's lots of Christmas stories that we all love, right? Like there's the Santa Claus, you know, one, two, and three, you know? Everybody knows that one, right? That's Disney and Tim Allen. It's fun. We watch them every year. And, uh, you know, there's a Christmas Carol, but, you know, that's Dickens and Scrooge. And there's a Christmas story. That's what we'll watch tonight, unless we fall asleep. But that's what we'll try to watch tonight. Uh, you know, Ralphie, you know, you're going to shoot your eye out, right? And so we all, we all love these stories. And I think with this really simple liturgy of these lessons and songs that we sing together, it reminds us that everyone is living in a story. And this is not obvious to us today. I think we tend to think because of the advances in science and because of our sophisticated philosophical thinking um, that we've kind of arrived at a place via science and philosophy that we now only live by facts or that we live by evidences of various sorts. But this is simply not true. Even our best and brightest thinkers are living in a story. Our greatest philosophers woke up one morning and thought, I think I wanna make a difference in humankind. The people who have created our greatest advances in medicine or, or aerospace or whatever, these are people who, who woke up every day in the middle of a story that oriented their life, not the mere facts or evidences that they were working with. The way this actually works is that human beings live out of their imaginations. And I don't mean by that to say they live out of make-believe. I mean that human beings live out of the ability to picture one's future. That's what I mean by imagination. Your God-given capacity to picture your future. And the motivators that go along with that, the goals, the ambitions, the sense of direction. And for lots of us, these are experienced as turning points in our lives. Some of us can remember a big turning point. Some of us can remember a few turning points. And so during our lead up time to Christmas this year, during Advent, we asked ourselves, what are the contenders for the most important turning points in history? And if you're politically inclined, you might think of the Russian or the French Revolution. If you're somebody who likes inventions, you might think of something like the steam engine or the printing press. Those would all be great turning points in human history. Or we might think of medical advances like vaccines. Or if you're religiously inclined, you might think of Luther and the 95 Thesis. But topping every list, every time a historian, every time a sociologist does these kinds of things, always topping every list of the turning point in history is either the birth or the resurrection of Jesus. Because this is what's real. This isn't a matter of opinion. This isn't a matter of conjecture. This isn't the kind of thing that we so often think sits outside of what we think of as knowledge. You know, we tend to bifurcate things these days, that there's religious beliefs. But these beliefs aren't really knowledge. They're, they aren't the kind of things that you could rely or base your life on. But here's the real deal. The route of education and law 
in the years before Jesus, the generations before Jesus. The things that Plato and Aristotle were trying, as brilliant as they were, proved to be ineffectual for fallen human nature. And for all their advances, the Greeks needed the Romans to stop the murderous culture that was going on around them. And the paths that were being espoused before Jesus by the Stoics and Epicurean philosophers, they more or less just conceded the world to evil and said, so let's just be stoic about it, or let's experience all the pleasure we can, but the world's not gonna change. These philosophers literally just consigned the world to the evil that they were experiencing. And this, this is the scene of intellectual despair and emotional turmoil and spiritual hopelessness into which exploded Jesus Christ and forever changed human history and said that the world isn't just confined to evil. The evil in your heart is not consigned to stay there in your heart personally forever. The systemic and political and economic injustices of the world aren't just confined to sit there, but God himself exploded into the world as this major turning point in history. But what this little story tells us that we read every year, and one of the reasons we need to read it every year it's not just to remind ourselves that, that this is what marks our community, that we're a part of this community of Christ and its message of hope against the world in which he came. But what this story tells us every year is that this is a story of humble love that's seen in the birth of Jesus. And then love filling human beings and all the dimensions of their ordinary life. This is the divine conspiracy, you might say. This is what God is up to. And so having a narrative like this, this little narrative that we remind ourselves of every Christmas Eve, it's not merely a tradition. It is a tradition, but like I said, a good one, like a favorite sweater. But having this tradition, it reminds us of our narrative that can then guide our lives into what God thought was so important to human flourishing. God thought having a sense of story was so important to human flourishing, that we not be left to the stories that we would devise on their own, that he literally gave Adam and Eve a story. And he gave Abraham and the calling of Israel a story to live in. Jesus gave his first followers a story to live in. And this Jesus community and the scriptures and the Holy Spirit have continued for 2,000 years to give us this story. And so when we, when we do this year in and year out, we're simply saying the story of Jesus and his humble birth, it teaches us something about the God who is revealed in him. It teaches us, for instance, what do you do if you're a CEO and you have ultimate power? Well, if you wanna live into the God story, you can see what God does with ultimate power. The God who's omniscient, knows everything, omnipotent, all powerful, what did he do with, with complete power? Well, he humbly came in a baby. And he said, this is the beginning of the end, like enough. Like enough of what's going wrong, we are going to begin to fix this. And so in his humble birth, Jesus purposely, or, or God through Jesus, purposely rejects the opportunities to be a political leader, though there's nothing wrong with that, or to be a king. But you have to note that he purposely rejected that. Again, I got no beef with the kings and queens that are left in the world, and I certainly have no beef with somebody trying to do good through our political system. But it just has to be noted that Jesus rejected those avenues 
and chose a different sort of avenue. And I think that what this helps us see is that his birth is meant to be for us creative, meaning the story we tell ourselves year in and year out is meant to have a creative effect upon us. Like if you ask yourself, why are we doing this tonight? What's the effect that it's supposed to have on us? Well, the effect that it's supposed to have on us is a creative dynamic where it begins to transform our hearts and our wills and to release us from the bondage of alternatives or false stories is supposed to make us whole and create in us the possibility for loving in a way that we could not imagine without God's kind of love shown in almighty God in a, in a dirty manger. And it teaches us that God has chosen to save the world, not just our individual souls, but the world, in all of its systems, in the whole world, that God has meant to save the world through his coming to earth in a vulnerable baby, born to parents who live their lives in shameful shadows, constant whispers about the birth of their boy. So when we say something like Jesus is divine, I know that's controversial today. It didn't take a rocket science to know that's controversial. I mean, like, duh. I mean, that's, a, that's kind of a big thing to say. But it's a breathtaking claim about the God who would do such a thing. Forget the little popular thing that's going on right now in culture about whether Jesus is divine or not. That, that's a big thing to say, but it is literally breathtaking thing to say about God, that he would incarnate himself in a human being. And so again, it teaches us something about our story, that how God enters and acts within the world assures us that God's at work today amongst the ambiguities, the twists, and the ironies of human history. And so in the event of Jesus' birth is this revelation of the deepest truth about the character of God. If that's true, then here's the last thing I want to say to you. If that's true, if there's anything to this story at all, wise men and shepherds and virgin births and manger scenes, if there's anything to it at all, if there's anything in there that gives us a hint about God's character, then our whole way of seeing the world is turned upside down and all of our values are transformed. See, Santa Claus 1, 2, and 3, that's Tim Allen's story. And I love Tim. I think he's great. But I can't inhabit that story. And Debbie and I went to the repertory last week and saw Scrooge. I can't get up on stage and be in that story. But the story that we're reading tonight it not only invites our participation, but as we get in it, it begins to transform our very beings. So we're gonna sing these songs and we're gonna hear these readings for the rest of our lives together. And we'll be doing this 20 or 25 years from now. Telling these same stories, singing the same songs, and we'll never grasp all the dimensions of the truth that are here and all the claims that it makes on our lives. Fall on your knees. For how many is you, for you, is that an intuitive posture? Well, what if we told ourselves this story over and over and over again, and Debbie sang it to us every year for about the next 25 years? What if we learned to fall on our knees before this story? Joy to the world, our world, this world? Did you go online and look at the news today? 
joy to this world? Well, yeah, what if we just sang this over and over and over again such that joy began to be something that marked our actual lives? Oh, come let us adore him. And if we just asked ourselves tonight, you know, to what degree do we actually adore God in his unfolding story? Well, we're just gonna read and we're gonna sing anyway. We're gonna keep telling ourselves God's story. We're gonna keep singing in worship to a loving and patient God who's inviting us to come and listen day by day to this story and to receive his grace and his power by which it becomes our story. So as we stand now um, to sing Silent Night, we are gonna come around and um, begin to light your candles and we'll begin to share them just kind of row to row. And as we begin to sing this most um, kind of comfortable of all Christmas songs, you're gonna have a few moments to, to consider what we've been doing. And then as we get to the last um, uh, stanza or verse of Silent Night, we'll open the back doors and Beth and I'll lead you down um, each aisle here and we'll go outside to the patio with our candles, finish singing Silent Night out there a cappella, and have our benediction out on the patio. Let's all stand.